0: Is energy going to be a deciding issue during today's midterm election results? Will President Biden's comments on fossil fuels with respect to oil and gas drilling and coal exploration hurt him and his party going forward? We break down these very items with Mandy Gunusekara, who I work closely with at Independent Women's Forum. She serves as a senior policy analyst with them. And she was most recently the chief of staff to the most recent EPA administrator under the Trump administration. Mandy is one of the sharpest minds on energy policy. I always defer to her whenever I have questions about these technical things, and we break down some competitive races, and if they're going to have voters be motivated by soaring energy costs, prices at the pump, heating oil, what have you, and kind of assess the president's very problematic comments on fossil fuels and why that will hurt him and his party, especially if we're going into a very cold winter and a winter where people are going to pay more to heat their homes and to fill up their gas tanks. As always, we love having Mandy on District of Conservation. Enjoy our conversation breaking down 2020 election predictions and thoughts. It's good to have Mandy Gunasekara back on the podcast today to break down some energy news midterm examinations as to whether or not energy is playing out at the polls and in the ballot box and where we think in terms of Senate house and potentially gubernatorial races, where energy is playing out as a top issue. Thank you again for coming on to break down these timely matters. Yeah. Happy to be with you, Gabby. Let's talk about president Biden's recent energy comments and maybe if it precipitates into a reaction from voters. So he said two things recently. He said that coal would be totally phased out because wind and solar in his mind are cheaper. And then he also reaffirmed that there will be no more drilling. What is your reaction to both of those statements he made? They walked back the coal comments, but they're there. And he seemed to have intended to say that wholeheartedly. What is your reaction to both of those?
1: Well, so much of Biden's administration and policies are Obama 2.0. And the only difference is that his diminished intellectual capacity has led him to where there he has more of these brief moments of honesty. A lot of Democrat policies across the board, but especially the case for energy policy, because nobody likes increased costs. And that's at the heart of the Democrat policies to make traditional energy sources, coal, oil, natural gas, um, mainly those three more expensive so that their politically preferred technologies like wind and solar seem more, I'm air quoting, affordable. That is their entire premise. And that's not very popular with the electorate unless you can gin them up into some extreme state of fear, with they, which they often try to do um, with climate rhetoric that is more about activism than actually conveying scientific or technical points that matter. But as I see Biden get up and say statements like we're shutting down coal, I mean, he he said a version of this on the campaign trail. He said, we will end all fossil fuels. And so he's had these brief snippets of absolute honesty, exposing what the Democrats policy means. If they want this energy transition to actually occur, it means shutting down coal, oil, and natural gas, and then replacing it with wind and solar. That is what they are trying to do. They just don't always say it so blatantly. And often they cover it in layers and layers of bureaucratic non-speak. But I will go back to what I said at the beginning with, with the diminished intellectual state of our president, which is on full display every time he gets out into the public. He he doesn't have the ability to lie in the way that Democrat candidates often do. And so the truth is coming out and it's for the voters to listen and to take them at their words. They mean it. And when he says that the comms people, the communications people will try to walk it back. But I know for a fact. These policy people working at the Department of Interior, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the White House Office of Economic Council and other offices, they are implementing the very policy that President Biden conveyed in a brief moment of honesty to the general public. So we have to take them for their word and the voters don't like it Um, and they shouldn't because it's not what's necessary to Get this country in a better economic state, nor a better environmental state. And I'll stop and take a breath right there. That's a good
0: comprehensive, I would say, overview of that, because I think a lot of people, especially environmentalists, forget, even with the actions that took place under the Obama-Biden administration to discourage investment in coal and drilling opportunities, or rather exploration opportunities for coal on federal lands, they supported increasing royalty rates. But even despite that, coal is still a very sizable chunk of our electricity grid. It's 22%. And coal is still necessary in other functions for energy computing and energy viability for different things. So electric vehicles require coal. Uh, solar and wind will probably be backed up by coal, if I remember correctly. Fossil fuels in general are required to back up solar and wind. So coal is still an integral part, no matter what preservationists and even some Republicans who've kind of bought into this net zero agenda as well. They dismiss coal at their own peril, I think, because looking at Europe, they've had to all go back to coal in wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and because of their support for for or detransitioning away from reliable oil and gas. So they've had to now go back to coal to stay afloat this winter. And so do you think um, this kind of hostility to coal could hurt Democrats perhaps today and in future elections going forward, even though it's not as, it's not as, let's say, scalable as it used to be because of just obviously natural gas production kind of winnowed our reliance on it. But also I think government policies further discourage coal development as well.
1: Yeah, and, and I think there's, there's some characteristics of coal that are really important, and it becomes abundantly clear in areas, especially in the Northeast and out West, where communities are exposed to more extreme cold temperatures. The inherent quality of coal and why it is so wonderful is that you can have massive amounts of coal reserves, piles of coal reserves, which represent a lot of energy available on the spot, and you can store that right next to the facilities that turn that into the electricity that is in otherwise used, So there is an energy security component with coal that you can visibly see when you go by coal-fired power plants and that becomes so important, more so in the winter than the summer. It's well known that more people die from exposure to cold temperatures versus extreme heat temperatures. Now, there's health complications on that side as well, but generally speaking, cold weather temperatures are more harmful to humans' livelihoods as well as uh, farmers' livelihoods. The the I was talking to some farmers the other day, which is why this is a little bit of top of mind, but During the winter seasons, especially for pork producers, this is when they get a lot of their piglets. Um, they They are brought in and they are housed in facilities that are fueled by propane, not necessarily coal, but propane. So having access to reliable heat sources during the winter is so important in a lot of different applications where truly lives and livelihoods are on the line. And coal is so powerful in the sense that you can visibly see the reserve and the backup. Um, You cannot store the same amount of natural gas as you can coal at a natural gas facility compared to a coal facility. The problem with wind and solar is that It only works when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. And what we know is typically the sun shines and the wind blows at times when we, the consumers, need it the least. So there's this inherent mismatch. And until the engineers, um, who I believe they will eventually break through, but until they get to the point where they can capture that and store it, it's not truly a viable source, wind and solar, that is. It's not a viable source for replacing base load energy, which is necessary to maintain the grid, maintain access to energy and electricity so that consumers can flip on the lights or turn on the heat or turn on the stove when they need it. Um, I I will also say coal, you know, it's, it is, we are blessed with the cleanest coal in the planet in the Midwest, the Powder River Coal Basin. That is the best you can get. And we are in abundance all throughout the West. I was in Jackson Hole this summer at a mining association meeting. And um, the the way, not only do we have the best, most high quality coal, which means that it comes with a powerful energy punch and it has a lot less impurities, which means a lot less emissions when you're combusting it to turn it into energy. Um, but the way that our folks mine it and extract it They've developed a lot of modern advanced processes. So all that to say, the coal use of today is light years ahead of the coal use of the past. And so the emissions equations from extracting it to refining it to combusting it and then sending it on down via you know electricity connection is a much cleaner process here in the United States. And I think as people learn about that and understand. It's a lot cleaner today than it historically has been, you know, from cradle to grave, so to speak, um, in the energy world, as well as an appreciation for what energy security means in cold areas and anywhere where there's extreme weather, but especially cold areas. um, There is a place for coal that makes a lot of sense because it's necessary to keep the grid running, to maintain stability, um, and especially when. People are exposed to extreme temperatures one way or the other. Coal usually is the source that actually keeps the lights on and um, you know keeps the ACs or the heat pumps or the stoves working. You cannot
0: reclaim from the initial, I guess, reading into it, uh, previously used solar and wind farm land. You can use and repurpose reclaimed coal fields for deer habitat. I have yet to see any evidence that... Land that is developed for solar and wind energy production can be reused because of the many different complications, the exorbitant use of land. So, if we can still use reclaimed coal fields very safely and regenerate that, that shows that there is still some utility behind coal development.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I actually went and toured, we have, um, it used to be American Coal mine in Mississippi. Now we don't have Powder River Basin coal in Mississippi. We have something called anthracite, um, which, which isn't as great as Powder River Basin, but there's still a use for it. And I went out to a coal facility where as they were mining it, they basically had a rolling mine where they would um, they would dig out the mine, extract the resource, and then they would move on to a next tranche. And immediately behind them they started the reclamation process. And the the guys I was riding around in a truck taking a look at the areas that had been reclaimed versus the ones where the resources were being extracted. And they had actually reclaimed it to um, a state that was better than what it previously was. And so there's immense opportunities, not just for reclamation to the status quo, but reclamation um, that goes above and beyond and actually creates a more robust and healthier habitat than previously existed um, before You know, coal miners came in and extracted the resource that then provides energy and improves our way of life. So there is this balance benefit that the coal miners have figured out how to do very well.
0: Yeah, and I think those learn-to-code comments from years past will come back to haunt them. And I think <laughs> in today's elections... People are going to hear President Biden's comments on we're phasing away fossil fuels, no more coal, and that is going to be top of mind for them, especially in regions where Democrats dominate politically. New England and the Northeast as a whole is likely going to suffer a heating oil shortage here in the Southeast. I'm seeing reports that we're going to have a diesel shortage and so much more uncertainty when it comes to cheap, reliable fuel, which should not be happening if we were actually exploring and developing so Biden's comments, are they going to influence people's votes, generally speaking?
1: Yeah, I I think so. And it's not just his comments. I mean, his most recent comments make it abundantly clear. But I think over the past two years, Americans have really been paying attention to the energy story in ways historically they wouldn't. And it's because we, outside of those who are in this policy space, the general public experiences the consequences or benefits of energy decisions via cost. And we know that energy has made inflation worse, which remains at 40-year highs, despite what the communications spin is coming from the White House. But also on gas prices, it continues to be 50 to 60% higher than it was, depending on your point of comparison, during the Trump administration. And then electricity costs continue to go up. And as you go into the winter season, my biggest concern, Gabby, um, in hearing these potential shortage discussions throughout the Northeast... Um, and then out through the the not necessarily the Midwest, but our mid- atlantic coast, you've been been hearing about it, is that this is happening before the winter season really sets in. We haven't had a serious cold snap come through the United States yet. And the folks responsible for delivering these energy resources to market are already raising the red flag that there's going to be a problem. Typically, we hear about this after about or two of a a serious cold weather event. And so I believe that This is top of mind for so many voters because they've been paying for the consequences of the Biden administration's anti-US energy, anti-fossil energy agenda that they've been busy implementing from day one. It's manifested itself in these high costs and bouts of unreliable energy. There's been headlines from California and from Texas, um, but folks are seeing these warning signs coming from places in the Northeast that has dealt, again, they've dealt with short shortages in the past, but never have they been dealing with potential shortages prior to the winter season actually setting in. And I think they understand what that means and that they are going to be paying for it. And the dollar, every family dollar today is strained beyond belief. And that doesn't go away regardless. That does not go away with, you know, Corrine Jean-Pierre walking back statements from the president. So, Yes, I think those statements, the most recent statements from the president about shutting down coal um, certainly don't help, but it just it's kind of a a period on the end of a very long anti U.S. energy sentence that he's been writing from the start. And Americans know that they know what the consequences are because they've been paying for it and they really want to see a change.
0: Where do you see energy specifically playing out? Are there any particular races, House, Senate, Governors, otherwise, where this is playing out in your mind? Any ballot initiatives too? Yeah. To you?
1: yeah. Uh, well, you know, admittedly, I'm not as I'm not as in tune on the ballot initiatives, so maybe you can help me on that front. But I will, I will say. Um, great, and so I will say the the key races. I mean, look at any of the states where their state based economy is tied to their resources. Um, at the top of that would be Pennsylvania. That's been very front and center. You have John Fetterman, who in twenty eighteen said he wanted to ban all fracking, hydraulic fracturing, and then the derivative industries um, that come off of that form the. I don't know the exact number, but it's almost half, if not over half, of the economic productivity within that state. So you have John Fetterman, who promises to ban all fracking. Um, and then you have Mehmet Oz, who has talked about improving and expanding the development of hydraulic fracturing and resource responsible resource use within the state. So I think that's very clearly going to play out. Obviously, with Fetterman and Oz, that's another area where you have a candidate Like Fetterman, he unfortunately had a stroke, um, but what it has done is it's left him in a diminished intellectual state, similar to what we're seeing with the president, although for other reasons. And an effect of that is he's not able to uh, lead voters on about his stance. He's not as able to honestly lie about the policies he would actually go about implementing. And so that's resulted in some very, clear bouts of honesty or inability to change the record of his past decisions. And so it's very clearly Fetterman is in the extremist environmental camp that wants to shut hydraulic fracturing down. Nemet Oz is the opposite side of that, this America first energy dominance position where he really wants to expand that and lift the state's economy and the process and see it grow. I would say the same thing about Ohio. You have Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance. Now, Tim Ryan has all of his intellectual capabilities. So he has been very busy, um, trying to say and represent that he has been supporting the coal miners, mostly of the western part of Ohio. But his record tells a completely different story. His record shows that he's been in lockstep with the extreme um, anti-U.S. energy agenda of Nancy Pelosi throughout his entire long, tenuous career. Um, and when he's in the state around Ohio voters, he says... Uh, he he tries to disown his record, and but but you again you see this difference between Tim Ryan and JD Vance. JD Vance he's this is the first time he's actually running, but he too has embraced um, you know the role of coal, the role of natural gas. He's been very high up on expanding expanding U.S. liquid natural natural gas exports. <clears throat> Which is not only beneficial domestically, but also hugely beneficial for our allies abroad. And, um, you know, it diminishes the role and the reach of someone like Vladimir Putin if our allies in Europe, especially, um, as well as certain Asian countries, can receive our U.S. natural gas. And from an environmental perspective, um, that's as clean as it gets in terms of providing uh, a, a baseload energy source. It doesn't get cleaner than US LNG. Um, and J.D. Vance has been a huge proponent of that. So he's been very smart. Again, Tim Ryan's record is anti-Ohio energy. What he said on the campaign trail He's tried to lie about his record to to get voters to ignore what he's actually done and just listen to the words that he's saying to try and get elected. But I honestly do not believe that that will work. And the polls have indicated that, we will know by end of today. Um, Nevada's another win. Catherine Cortez-Masco and Adam Laxalt. Now, now Masco has been, she's been more moderate in terms of her approach to energy. um, But she hasn't been a proponent of U.S. energy in the way that Adam Laxalt has early on. And and I do think for a state like Nevada, it is very much resource-based state. Uh, The the state economy is tied to the resource development and use um, within their state. And I have a good friend that that lives out there, and this has even made some headlines, Nevada has had these crazy rainy day funds because of tax revenues that have been generated off of resource development within their state. And Cortez Masto, again, she hasn't been the most extreme, but she hasn't been the proponent that an industry like that deserves in a state like Nevada, and Adam Laxalt has been filling the gap. Um, the only other one I'll mention on the Senate side is Colorado. Again, you have um, you have Michael, Michael Bennett. Bennett, yeah, versus O'Day. Um, it's it's similar to Fetterman and Oz. There's an anti-fracking candidate versus a pro-fracking candidate because the pro-fracking candidate understands that in Colorado, like Pennsylvania, um, the industry has figured out a very efficient, safe way to extract that resource, and there's a lot of derivative benefits from it. There's
0: also New Hampshire. I think the heating oil shortage is going to play out interestingly there uh, with Don Bolduc versus Maggie Hassan. On the governor's side too, we have some potential flips. I think in New Mexico, New Mexico is an oil and gas dependent state. I think 40% of the economy is jobs in that sector. And with (laughs) uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham, she has undermined that uh, with her preservationist policy. So that's why we may see Mark Ronchetti Potentially flip that seat red. It used to be Republican prior to her tenure. It was two terms of Susanna Martinez, and she really helped develop the economy there by allowing oil and gas to just take off, operate safely, things of that sort. So I think energy could play out there, especially because they're so dependent. Uh, And I think also in Michigan, I remember Governor Whitmer was threatening to shut down that natural gas pipeline um, at the height of COVID and, and shortly afterwards. So it could play out there, I think. And in I think House seats in New England, we're seeing places like Connecticut, one seat there and another seat in Rhode Island, play because of the rising energy cost there. I think energy is going to be a big factor in those two states uh, with those two competitive races we see. I think it's going to play out in most of these seats. And the ballot initiative I wanted to discuss with you or mention to you, it's California Prop 30, Proposition 30. And I was reading into it when writing an article about ballot initiatives to be aware of, and they want to tie... Taxing incomes over $2 million by adding another 1.5% to that taxation rate to have those monies go to uh electric vehicle subsidies, so-called renewable projects, and to mitigate wildfires. And I was reading that and I was yeah. like, this is such a gimmick. Like, you don't need to tax residents of California further. You have the tools to manage your forests without burdening people further. And that goes to show that they are not serious about tackling high-intensity wildfires like what we discuss often at Independent Women's Forum and similar mm-hmm. venues. And just seeing that they're, they're tying to forest management, we need to tax you more to manage the forest. I'm like, you don't need to. You already have the resources there. Do your jobs and don't play games with, with wildfires.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, you know, do, do the electric vehicles in California need another subsidy? I mean, I think the answer is no. I have no idea... To what extent they've actually received um, state-based funding in, you know, from California drivers and citizens, but it is—it's pretty high. Um, now they do have the highest number of citizens that drive electric vehicles compared to any other state, but that number is still embarrassingly low. It's around twelve to fourteen percent, depending on how you count it. And then if you dig in a little bit deeper, um, about. 78% of total electric vehicle drivers have a second internal combustion engine car, a gas-powered vehicle, as a backup to their electric vehicle. And this this rings true in a state like California as well. So it's just another... It's just another attempt to create a taxpayer-funded slush fund for the California leadership to do crazy, irresponsible things. And you're right on the the wildfire side. I mean, they have federal and state resources to do the right thing. People know what to do. It's these absurd environmental policies that have been standing in the way and making wildfires that have occurred since the beginning of California's time unmanageable, and it's because the environmentalists are standing in the way of taking reasonable actions to prevent a, a normal course of natural ecosystems, which is wildfires, um, from it getting out of hand. One other race, Gabby, I thought about, I don't think we mentioned, but as you were talking about governors, that I, I do... Think could be groundbreaking in terms of energy is New York. If Lee Zeldin beats Kathy Hochul, that could actually create the opportunity to give the Northeast what it's needed for such a long time, which is a pipeline that runs through the state. um, And then that can tamp down on future uh, uh, oil shortages, fuel or oil shortages, and diminish their dependence on that through the winter months, which has always been the source of of, um, energy cost and reliability consternation for as long as I can remember, as long as I've been paying attention to these issues.
0: Yeah. And it's largely benefited Russia, uh, even yeah. domestically with New York, not having that pipeline, they've had to rely on Russia for those, uh, critical energy sources. It's, it's bizarre. And yes, I un- overlooked how energy could play out there, but I think it would definitely define that race. If Zeldin were to, win and and stun the nation with that. And I think with Christine Drazen's race in Oregon too, that's also a very energy dependent issue because she was actually one of the proponents against the cap uh, cap and trade equivalent bill when she was house minority leader. So she's been staving off a lot of these kind of climate alarmist policies. So I think even over there in Oregon, which has timber uh, potential for a lot of energy, safe energy development, hunting, fishing, all that stuff she has the potential to also flip that seat too, interestingly enough, and also put like sound energy policies back or sound conservation policies back in the governor's mansion.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's, um, you know, back to the initial point, I don't know how much voters think about the opportunities if they were to occur. I do think the top of Top of mind issue for New Yorkers is probably crime, and for a very unfortunate but mm-hmm. obvious reason. Um, but there's there's if you think about the policy potential if these flips actually do occur, it's significant um, and could benefit those states, the local economies, and the families that live there for a really long time.
0: Yeah, cut the reliance on foreign oil and gas, employ people, uh, bring some economic relief. And, and you know, fewer costs when filling up gas tanks and powering their homes. I think that's what voters are clamoring for, not just Republicans, but independents and even Democrats, too. Everyone is affected by these policies from the Biden administration. So I think people will vote for sound, sober energy policies. And we'll have you come back on to talk about what you're kind of forecasting for, let's say, potential Republican led congressional chambers, both the House and the Senate are because we don't have that much time to discuss this. But we'll have you back on just before the new Congress assembles and starts. But if people want to follow your musings, connect with you, Mandy, where do you want to defer them to?
1: Yeah, so a couple places, iwf.org is always a great place. Um, You can find my work there as well as Gabby's work. Um, And then also you can follow me on Twitter, at Mississippi MG or truthsocialmandy.gunasekara.
0: Wonderful, I will defer everyone to your links. You have been putting out some great content. I love working with you, and we go back and forth over great ideas, and I am so honored to work with you because you are probably the best, one of the best policy minds in energy, one of the young policy energy minds out there in this country. We are lucky to have you, especially on our side, and it's always an honor to work with you, and I know we have many, many more years of working together, and I always appreciate you coming on the podcast to break down these complex objects in real time that people can understand, so thank you again for coming on, Mandy.
1: Yeah. Happy to be with you. And it is such a pleasure to work with you, Gabby, across the board. Um, Our only limit is the time we have in the day to finish all the projects we talk about. So if there's there's any of your listeners out there that are interested in joining our team, please let us know. We'd love to have you. Yeah. For the
0: ladies out there, we do have a need for visiting fellows. So you should get your application in December 1st. And maybe if you have an interest, you can work with us. We would love to have more and more. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys Moreover, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.